Hello and welcome to this week's Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Travis Tygart, Chief Executive Officer for the US anti-doping agency, USADA. I'll be speaking with Travis about USADA's experience investigating and successfully sanctioning the co-conspirators in the US Postal Service cycling team doping scandal, including Lance Armstrong. Travis also talks to me about anti-doping policy in US Major League Sport, offers advice for those working in sport who may find themselves having to fight corruption within their organisation or sport, and talks about the upcoming Sports Lawyers Association conference taking place in Chicago later this week. I hope you enjoy the show. Travis, thank you for joining me today. I wondered if you could start off by telling our listeners and readers a little bit about your background, about how you first got into the anti-doping movement and what was your motivation behind it? Yeah, well, you know, thanks for the question. I, you know, I I grew up playing every sport there was as a young kid and obviously, you know, enjoyed the competition, enjoyed the camaraderie, the, I think the lessons of life that come from playing sports, um, ended up coming back in after undergrad uh, college here in the U.S., taught um, high school and coached for a few years. And I was either, you know, in the social studies department, I was the teacher slash coach, but down in the locker rooms, I was the coach slash teacher. So I, I really appreciated what um, that environment and what sport was able to do for young athletes. Um, and it was just an environment that I, I really appreciated, um, you know, all the benefits that arose from it. So I ended up going to law school and was certainly interested in um, sports law to a certain extent, I had the opportunity to write a few law reviews that were ultimately published not dealing with anti-doping, but dealing with antitrust and Title IX, some equal, you know, rights for uh, females who played sports and, and those types of things, and and then ultimately, um, you know, found a, a job, um, was practicing, you know, big firm commercial litigation here in the U.S., but kept my sort of feelers out for sports law positions, and a and a position opened up in Colorado Springs, right at the time that the United States Olympic Committee had decided to externalize its program and USADA was formed. So it, it led to a position, a position um, working with Rich Young, who's a cast arbitrator, and at the time, still today, is you know, one of the, 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 the most influential lawyers in this area. And I had a chance to work at his law firm for a few years. And then into it, um, you know, USADA was one of my clients and, and spent an awful lot of time with USADA. And I just, I, I fell in love with the purpose the mission, you know, protecting clean athletes, the integrity of sport. To me, you know, if you love sport um, for what it, you know, not the necessarily the revenues that it brings, and that's certainly an important aspect of it, but if you love it for the things that it can do for young kids, um, giving them, you know, the skills, the confidence, um, relationships, all the benefits that we see from sport, um, to me it, it's an absolute dream job to be able to day in and day out while it's hard and it's tough and it's not a sport job all the time, um, being able to fight for something that you, you know, truly believe in that gives, you know, hope and promise to young, young, young athletes um, around the world is a, is a dream job for me. You mentioned that there's some difficulties or hardships, you know, with doing this, but it's not an easy job you're doing. What, what would you say are some of the hardest parts of your job and how would you how would you say since your involvement in the anti-doping movement and working with and then for uh, USADA how the attitude has changed and I've been pretty clear over the years particularly during you know the high profile cases where we've been you know personally investigated followed by in you know private investigators for athletes who have 
cheated sport who were trying to escape consequence or receiving the death threats that we received. I mean, it's not, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough job at times. Um, and you really just have to approach it in a very, you know, methodical, non-emotional, you just do the job that you're asked to do. And, and I think that's what our athletes, the, particularly the clean athletes expect us to do. And, and so while it's, while it's difficult and it's not, you know, someone, um, very close to this organization um, said taking on a going forward on an Armstrong case's career suicide. Um, you can't worry about your next you know move. You have to be you know committed to the purpose and the mission of of what you're here to do today. And b- because you're confronted with difficult decisions, and no one wants to face the reality that a, a global icon or a national hero you know, has unfortunately defrauded um, the sports world. And, and it's certainly not an enjoyable day when, when, you have, when you're confronted with either doing the right thing, which is to move the case forward, like the Armstrong case or the Marion Jones case or the Tim Montgomery case, um, or attempting to, you know, shun away from your responsibilities and find a way just to protect your own self or maybe your own entity. Um, so, so it's not a, you know, an easy position from that standpoint, but, but at the end of the day, I think we're, we're fortunate to have an independent board of directors who is committed to doing the right thing in all cases, the fair thing in all cases, regardless of someone's stature. And, and we just apply the facts to the rules and, and, and our job is actually pretty simple if we don't let all those other external pressures get in the way. And, and we certainly have the luxury now, um, of being able to do that, and that's something that our athletes who are clean and doing it the right way, they deserve. And, and, and that's what we do. You mentioned at the Tackling Doping in Sport conference, actually, about this, which is the, the importance of your independent board of directors. And given, you know, I, I, I can't imagine what it was like having to cope with the, with the press attention and the negativity around, for example, the Armstrong case in particular. From my my perspective, I think I would have found that particularly particularly difficult and challenging to deal with, knowing you know if you've got all the facts in front of you, you know what the situation is, and then having to put up with the political pressures which you alluded to at the conference as well. How much importance were the the board of directors or your support network around you uh, during that time? Yeah, I mean they're they're absolutely critical in having you know not only you know family at home that. As similarly provides that support, but also a, a team, you know, here staff-wise as well as the board of directors, um, you know, just being committed and not having any other influences, even subtle ones, pulling them in a different direction, I, I think is absolutely critical, and, and it's why I address it at the conference because I think it's too easy to justify having, you know, executive members of sport also sitting on boards of anti-doping organizations. And at the end of the day, um, that model will not work in these types of cases because that person has a conflicting duty. And are they going to protect their sport and the revenues of their sport? Or are they going to, you know, adhere to the, the mission and purpose of anti-doping? And, you know, someone actually, our first chairman, Frank Shorter, who you may know, um, you know, great marathoner, was robbed when when a, uh, an athlete he competed against in, in the Olympics, um, you know, doped. Later was revealed had doped, and he got the silver, not the gold, which he had won four years previous. But he says the great thing about USADA, both its board and its staff, is that they're not looking to go anywhere else. 
and and you have to make decisions here that people aren't going to be happy with, but it's the right decision. And and again, you know, given that this is not a, a, a politician's job, this is not a, a sports job in that sense that people here are coming to work at USADA or joining our board to see what other board within the Olympic movement they can join, um, which which frequently happens. I mean, let's be clear about that. And, and that's fine for the sports world. But in the enforcement, the regulation world, when you're here to apply the rules to the facts, even in tough, high-profile, difficult, disappointing, frustrating cases like an Armstrong case, um, you know, removing that element of subjectivity of someone's personal interest over the interest of the mission is absolutely critical to succeeding in, in the mission, we believe. And, and, and we say that because we, we've sat in the chair, you know. Believe me, if I was at a sports organization and could in any way justify not having to move forward on uh, an Armstrong-type case because it was going to be bad for a duty that I had to the organization, you know, you would have found a way to do that. It, it would have absolutely been the wrong decision, and it would have been justifying the wrong outcome and essentially throwing out the rules for one particular person just because of the, the, the impact or the outcome negatively that it would have for the sport and for any other reason you can find. Um, but we fortunately don't have to go through that analysis because our commitment is to our mission, which is for clean athletes and the integrity of competition, not for the revenues or the TV sponsorships or short-term profits of a sport organization. The USADA, the UK Anti-Doping, Australian Anti-Doping, you know, you guys are, are relatively well resourced compared to your counterparts in some of the other uh, jurisdictions. And I know that there's, you know, ongoing support between you all, Leonardo's all around the world. How would, should some of these organisations deal with some of the political influences that is applied to them? And in a situation like Armstrong, where people putting political pressure on you, there's huge media storm about it you know people were you 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 were basically calling their in their eyes at least calling their hero a liar which is, you know it transpired that he was but you know at the time if someone else in a similar position in another country in a similar organization is dealing with the same problem how would you recommend they go about it yeah i mean i you know again i think i think you have to you have to just stand up simply stand up for what's right and you know ensure the facts and what is provable, not in the media, but in a court of law, under the rules of the process, um, is, you know, the outcome is is clear. And, and when you have a case like we had with the Postal Services team, um, you know, the it was the most, I've said it before, it was the most powerful case that we've ever had. We, we've never had a, a case with so much different evidence that proved the conspiracy to defraud at the level that this did. In our press release that we issued that day, we said there's no doubt. So it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. It wasn't comfortable satisfaction. It wasn't preponderance of the evidence. There was absolutely no doubt. But that's all based on the evidence. So so it has to be based on the evidence and, and the rules of the legal process that every athlete deserves and every coach deserves before they're, you know, declared um, to have doped or committed a violation um, by the media, there has to be respect for that process. But, but, but look, I think you, I think you stand on the principle of the rules, and and you don't let outside whether it's politicians, whether it's you know the media, whether it's the public, 
Um, you, you don't whether it's litigation, you don't let those influences you know deter you from doing the right thing and, and following your rules and following the process that's in place. Because if that's all it took for athletes to escape consequence, then we might as well shut down. And and look, we we said also if people don't like us doing our job at the end of this, when all the evidence is out, if they don't like us doing our job, then then we'll shut down. We'll all go find new jobs. I think that would be a terrible outcome and tragedy for sport today, and, and certainly athletes who don't want to have to use dangerous performance-enhancing drugs to become, you know, uh, gold medal winners or platform um, members, you know, podium finishers. Um, you know, it would it would totally change what sport is, I think. But if that's where the politicians fall, if that's where the funders fall, if that's where ultimately sport organizations fall, then then we'll go away. We'll shut down. But as long as we're here and we're tasked and funded to do a job, it's not going to be a charade. We're going to do our job within the rules to best support clean athletes and the mission that we've been handed. I recently interviewed Frank Marshall and Matt Tolmack about their movie, The Armstrong Lie. And in that movie, Lance says at the, in the opening sequence, we don't know what the truth is yet. What do you think he meant by that? Yeah, you know, I, I haven't seen the movie, so it, it's tough for me to, to, to comment. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, it, we, it's obviously public and we've, you know, made it clear we've attempted to have Armstrong come in, um, you know, not on, not on camera, but come in and speak with us under oath and, and provide all the information that he may have. Um, you know, I think, and he unfortunately refused to do that. I, I think, I think at the end of the day, there are, you know, there are a number of lessons for sport that are critically important, um, as well as those who are relying on, you know, clean athletes who are relying on independent organizations to stand up for their rights. And, and, and I think it's just do, you know, do the right thing. Don't talk yourself into the wrong decision. I think for sport, you know, it should be a it should it should be a loud um, warning and, and wake up call that corrupt cultures, which clearly existed, and and look, it wasn't just Lance Armstrong and his eleven teammates that were in our reasoned decision. You know, there were a number of spontaneous emissions, you know, going on, you know, a, a dozen or more immediately after our reasoned decision. So it was a culture a number of athletes, a number of team directors, doctors that were all part of this culture that so easily justified the use of these dangerous drugs and then did everything within, you know, a lot of things, almost everything within their authority or their power um, to stamp out anyone who attempted to be truthful or be clean. And what we can't forget are all those athletes who were clean during that time period who attempted to compete successfully without being frauds, as well as all those athletes who were forced to leave the sport because they were unwilling to do so, and those who spoke up during that time, Christophe Bassons, the Simeones, um, Scott Mercier's, Darren Bakers. I mean, there's a, li- a big list, and, and they're really the heroes of the sport, quite honestly, but their, their decisions have to be supported and validated going forward and, and not allow profits, growth of sport, you know, whether it's bicycles, helmets, gear that's associated with the sport 
and the monies that those generate, individual event organizers' interest in having successful events, TV revenues, whatever it may be from a profit standpoint, the profits can't overtake the integrity of the sport. And if we let that happen in sport, then we've lost, I think, an institution, one of the last remaining institutions that truly gives hope to a lot of people around the world that their lives can be better and also gives hope to a lot of fans that their lives can be better through sport. And, and if we suddenly allow corrupt forces to take over sport and it truly becomes a win at all costs at every level, um, then, then sport in most people's mind, I think, is, is ruined permanently. That's really interesting, as that's exactly what Frank Marshall and Matt Tolmack were saying in, in the interview I did with them, that they were worried about the winning at all cost mentality causing or driving people to doping in sport, especially with parents buying their kids supplements and so forth. Um, but the culture in sport or the culture in any walk of life is, is something that's notoriously difficult to change. And I know that this has been a problem in, in US Major League Sport. Um, I know there's ongoing discussions last year with the NFL uh, Players Association and the NFL in relation to the human growth hormone test. What would you say is the biggest issue facing US Major League Sport with regards to anti-doping right now? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think, I think one, though, it, it is... It does take time, and certainly people view culture change as taking time. I don't necessarily agree. I think, I think you know, disruptive environments happen all around this world today, in large part thanks to social media. I mean, think of, think of the impact that Facebook and Twitter have had on, you know, governments around the world and, and their responding to transparency and accountability and you know we have this taxi service in the u.s car service rather in the u.s called uber that is disrupting an entire you know culture that's been in existence for generations so i I think to some extent people are begging for disruption in cultures where it's the right thing and it's the right outcome and and i think the the doping the drug cultures are are ripe to be disrupted in a really big way because sports fans are sick of athletes lying to them, cheating them, defrauding them. While yes, they want to win. They don't want, they don't take any pride. I don't think in winning, knowing that their team cheated in order to win. And and so, so I think while it is tough, um, I I think it's ripe. and, and, And I think you see the benefits of that, in Major League Baseball, for example, I mean, in a in a relatively short period of time, remember baseball in 2003 didn't have a testing program with any consequences to it. Um, today, you know, less than 11 years later, they've got by far the best program in pro sport here in America. Um, you know, it's not water code yet, but it's it's a fantastic policy from the number of tests that they're doing, both blood and urine, the investigative unit they have, longitudinal analysis. And, and not only is it a very good policy, the best in professional sport, but it also is being implemented with the resources and the determination to truly protect the rights of the clean athletes in that sport. And, and so I think you see major, you know, changes and cultural advancements um, for the good of all the players as well as sports fans who cherish baseball for the right reasons, not, you know, just for how many home runs can be hit, but the true purity of what the game is supposed to is supposed to be. And, and I think that's in large part why you see the economic value of baseball higher today than it's ever been. 
and the growth is as big as it's ever been and the revenues are as big as it's ever been because they've taken aggressive stance to return the game to what fans want, which is pure, evenly matched competition, not, you know, a few drug-induced athletes just crushing the ball out of the park. I agree. The integrity of sport is a key attribute. And as we've seen in cycling and in Indian cricket, if your integrity is questioned, then the sport suffers. And it's great to see the Major League Baseball are making such great progress in that regard. So moving on to US sport, um, the Sports Lawyers Association Conference is taking place in Chicago in May. Um, and I believe you'll be attending. Is that right? And I think also you're speaking at the event? Yes, I am. Yeah, and actually we're, we're, I'm, I've been asked to moderate a panel. Um, Matthew Reed from the Court of Arbitration for Sport is going to be on that panel. Um, Lester Munson, who's a lawyer but also an ESPN analyst um, or commentator, is going to be on the panel. And then Howard Jacobs, who, you know, in, in the U.S. at least, but also I think around the world has represented a number of athletes in the cast um, and our, you know, anti-doping process as well as Major League Baseball and others. So it should be a, a hopefully a very good discussion on kind of, you know, the where are we now, the aftermath of, you know, the U.S. Postal Services case and the biogenesis A-Rod case in baseball and, and hopefully a good discussion on um, continuing, um, you know, to, to ensure the system, you know, is fair but is also, um, you know, balanced to protect the rights of clean athletes, really the victims of, of uh, you know, those who, who violate the rules. I'm really looking forward to that. I know that Matthew doesn't give many public appearances and also know Howard is a great public speaker, so it should be quite a, a, a good panel. Uh, the conference is very well attended. I remember last year there were somewhere in the region of, sort of 800 sports lawyers. I know 200 of them were students, but it is kind of the go-to sports law conference in the U.S., yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's it, you know, the, the SLA has done a fantastic job over the years. Um, you know, we have a relatively new president, Glenn Wong, who, who's in place, who was a CAS arbitrator at one time, but a professor of law has just done a fantastic job of painting the vision and, and continuing the effort to build the conference, but also provide real value to the members. So we're, we're really, really excited about it this year in Chicago. Um, and should be, you know, another fantastic conference and, and really bringing the world together. Um, it's while it's, you know, predominantly U.S. based, we do have a number of international members. And, you know, part of um, I was on the international committee for a period of time and, you know, part of the effort as well as to have, you know, connections with others around the world who are practicing, whether it's anti-doping or any other, you know, sphere that touches on, um, you know, sports law, you know, IP, trademark, litigation, um, and, and broaden, you know, the knowledge base, but also the relationships so that lawyers around the world, you know, know how to get in touch with each other and can have resources, you know, around the globe um, as issues arise and, and also have a network of people that they can, they can rely on and, and go to if, if any issues come up. I do think that's one of the great things about that conference. And I know that um, the SLA are working with the British Association for Sport and Law as well and ANSLA, uh, the Australian New Zealand Sports Law Association, and us at, at Law and Sport to sort of build, help build the, the sort of dialogue between sports lawyers internationally. Um, there was a great panel last year. It's, yeah, it's a fantastic conference. So I'd recommend for everyone to, to attend if you can. And I, I, personally, I, I say to all the sort of the European sports lawyers, you know, if, if you really want to, 
either be involved with or uh, have more discussions with the uh, US sports and international sport, you should go to the SLA conference um, because, you know, people there, it's, it's different. I'm not sure what your perception is, but mine is that it's a very different feel to European conferences in that, you know, the content's really good, but there's also a, a large emphasis on networking and people are willing to, you know, meet new people, share ideas, uh, you know, and you, you can make some really good connections rather than just contact, which is what I found um, coming, from, coming away from last year. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the one of the great things about sports lawyers here in the U.S., generally speaking, not in every case, is you know they they, they love sport to a certain extent. You know, may, maybe played um, at some level, but appreciate um, you know sort of the values that sports brings, and 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 part of that is the camaraderie, the teammates being able to influence you know younger younger athletes. Um, younger lawyers in that case, but a lot of the same attributes that you learn playing sports are also brought, um, I think, around the SLA conferences. And so it's a very welcoming and open um, opportunity to, to, to network and develop relationships and, and also friendships with the people that are there. So to wrap up, because I know you're extremely busy, so thank you very much uh, for your time. I would love to get your take on where is the well, where's the future of antidoping going? How do you see the sort of movement changing over the sort of next three to five years? Yeah, you know, I think the I think the discussion has to continue. Um, we have to continue to learn the lessons uh, of the recent years and 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 face the reality that the amount of money flowing into sport is only going to further you know attract those who are unscrupulous and are who are willing to violate law as well as rules of sport to gain an advantage. And, and we really have to decide, are we serious about protecting the, the inherent value of what sport is? And, and I directly connect the inherent value of you know, sport at a, a first grade non-competitive level with the value that it brings at a professional level to the marketplace. I don't, I don't think fans want to see cyborgs or chemically induced athletes competing against one another. I think they want pure competition, and that's what has the inherent value. They don't want to see rigged matches either. They want to see actual, real competition. The outcome is not predetermined. There are no artificial influences determining who's going to win, and, and that's the economic value of it. So if people disagree with that, let's have that discussion. But I think most people agree with it. So then you have to take the stance that enforcing the rules – ensuring that market value is maintained is not going to be a charade, but the resources, the determination, independent organizations have to be in place to ensure that sport maintains its ultimate market value or, or otherwise the growth, the revenues, all the things that are good from an economic standpoint are, are ultimately going to be poisoned and ruined. And look, I think you see that in some sports. A lot of people have said that about, horse racing here in the United States. It's on a drastic decline, and a lot of people attribute it to the fact that, you know, drugs and, and other practices have invaded, you know, stables and barns and have, have caused it to be a, a competition that's not based on um, what you see on the field, but what drugs or, you know, other practices horses are being distributed, all because the money that those owners are willing, owners, trainers, whomever else, are willing to, um, you know, put in their pocket on a short-term basis. And, and that's a dangerous position for every sport to be in. So we've got to ensure that we don't let sport continue the effort moving forward and ensure that sport doesn't become, 
you know, just a circus that no one wants to watch. I was speaking to Ian Smith at the Professional Cricketers Association at the Tackling Doping in Sport conference uh, last month, and he mentioned to me that, or suggested, that there should be a shared valued system in sport in order for it to progress, whether it is, uh, you know, adopting something along the lines of the IOC's uh, principles and values. Is that something you agree with? Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I think each sport obviously is somewhat unique, but there, I think there are some collective principles that they all share, which is, a, you know, pure, a, a real competition that's not predetermined or rigged and is not is free of, you know, poisonous influences that, that affect the outcome. And that's That's the value of sport at the professional level. Now, you know, going down to the first graders playing in a non- competitive environment there, there are different values there but but certainly you know having the discussion um, and, and trying to identify where you can those principles that stretch across the unique sports I, I think it, you know is only an effort on the course of trying to maintain um, the, the the ultimate value of what sport brings regardless of the level thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me I know you've got an extremely busy schedule. Well, thanks, Sean. I, I, you know, really appreciate the opportunity and uh, really, you know, appreciate your thoughtful questions and um, look forward to hopefully seeing you somewhere soon and at, at, at the SLA, if not before. That was an interview with Travis Tigart, Chief Executive Officer of the US Antidoping Agency, USADA. Well, thank you for tuning in. And remember, for all your expert commentary and analysis of the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. Follow us on Twitter at LawInSport, go to our YouTube page, LawInSportTV, or follow me at Sean LawInSport.